it's incredibly hard to build a company in healthcare. There are much easier ways to make money in this life. And we are mission driven. We care about what we're doing, but there's a lot of people trying to solve these problems. Like they're not, um, they're not new problems. Most people aren't, I don't usually need to spend a ton of time on the problem slide because I get it right. We get it. And it's really about why are you all the right people to be doing what you're doing? Welcome to Startup Health Now, the podcast where we celebrate the entrepreneurs and innovators reimagining the future of health. I'm Logan Plaster. This week's episode is pulled from a recent fireside chat we held with investor Alyssa Jaffe, who's a partner at Seven Wire Ventures and focuses on digital health. Alyssa sits on the board of Iogo Health and works with five health companies as a board observer, so she's got a very hands-on understanding of what's working and what's not in the market today. In the interview, Alyssa shares some best practices for breaking through the noise and landing a meeting with an investor. She talks through the importance of founder market fit, why passion is particularly important in healthcare today, and why she's so bullish on the health innovation market as a whole. We hold these candid conversations in front of a live audience of founders from the Startup Health portfolio, so you'll get to learn from their questions as well. Stick around. I know what makes Seven Wire a great partner for a startup. Absolutely. So for us, we are quite thematically driven and our investment thesis is what we call the informed connected health consumer. So as Logan mentioned, everything that we do is all about empowering people to become better stewards of their own health and really thinking about healthcare technology and services, meeting people where they are. And I, I'm happy to double click on that, but it's really the cornerstone of the world that we're trying to build as we think about health plus care. And there's a couple other things that make us unique. We are what we call an operator-driven model. So we do less deals, we're a more concentrated portfolio strategy, and we really focus on driving value throughout our portfolio companies. We spend a lot of time with our companies. We meet with our CEOs weekly, bi-weekly, sometimes daily. We talk to them depending on what's going on. And we really get in the weeds to help drive growth. Our network um, across plans, providers, pharma, self-insured employers, and really thinking through what our companies need uh, in order to succeed. And because of this, we actually can be pretty creative. So we both invest in companies and we do start companies. Um, most notably, we started a business called Lavongo, which many of you may know, uh, took that company public in 2020. And then in 2021, we merged with Teladoc Health uh, in an $18.5 billion transaction. And for us, um, we started about, we just actually launched our fourth hatch, of which I'm, I'm also on the board of. Um, it still hasn't been disclosed, but another company we're pretty excited about. And our money, about 60% of it comes from strategic investors. And so I mentioned a lot of those, um, the incumbents, potential customers for many of you. Um, we have plans like Cigna and Blue Cross Blue Shield. We have providers like Rush and Memorial Herman. We have um, pharma companies, we have employers who really work with us and work with our companies as these their customers, as co-investors, or sometimes as lead investors. And so, uh, Logan, you asked, what, what do you get from us? And, and when you partner with Sevenwire, and 
Um, the answer is a, it's a real partner. I mean, you have to want it and you have to want, we're not the type of people who are just going to show up once a quarter, attend the board meeting, check the box and say, thank you so much. Um, we're not just going to, you know, maybe once in a while, shoot an email introduction. I'm going to introduce you to a big health plan. I will join you on that call. I will get on that airplane. I will join you in that meeting and we will close that business with you. Um, at the end of the day, we just, we are builders and we are operators. And for us, it, we, our philosophy is it takes a lot of smart people around the table to be successful in healthcare. And we want to do whatever we can do in order to make sure our companies are successful. You know, this, this call represents a lot of founders uh, really tackling health innovation in very different ways. So maybe it's helpful to get beneath the sort of top line thesis uh, understanding uh, about, you know, being consumer uh, driven and um, empowering patients and talk about maybe some examples of what that looks like. And maybe just as importantly, what it doesn't look like, uh, what doesn't fall under that rubric for you. Sure, sure. So um, I'll give sort of a um, subpart B to our main thesis, and then maybe a couple of swim lanes of things for 22 that we're looking at. So really how we think about the informed connected health consumer is, you know, if Logan, if you and I aren't getting access to our own information, if we're not getting connected into the system to improve our own health outcomes, it's not a fit for us. So there's amazing solutions out there in healthcare, um, you know, work, work process automation, um, or workflow efficiencies, um, rep cycle management, even working on provider efficiencies, all of which need to be available and exist, but that's not our true north. That's really not what we're trying to build. We're trying to focus on how can we all partner together to empower people, given that most of health actually comes outside of the care of a provider's office. And we work very closely. Most of our companies will fall B2B to C, or I think the new and Vogue way to say it sometimes is uh, D to C to B. <laughs> um, and so we have a number of companies, again, that work very, very closely with the incumbents, but are always delivering value to the end consumer. Um, what this means in terms of subsequent links, so just a couple of things. This is not um, fully exhaustive of a list, but things that we really like. Obviously, given what we've built with, with a company like Livongo, we do like verticalized solutions for chronic condition management. We have a number of others in this space. Example, a business called Zorigo, which we can talk about for people with chronic skin conditions. We look at um, behavioral health and mental health. Um, particularly, I spend a lot of time in the SMI, severe mental illness category, so the higher acuity space. Uh, we have an investment in a business called NoCD and OCD for people with obsessive compulsive disorder. We look at women's health. Um, I spent a ton of time there. Angel invested in a number of companies, and we actually just hatched a company in women's health that hopefully we can share a little bit more down the road. We look at what I call health events, so things that happen, um, whether that be think um, oncology, a business called Jasper, MSK, a business called Recovery One. So a number of things that happen throughout the course of your life. And we look at vulnerable populations. So we'll look at, um, we have an investment, a business that used to be called Consejo Sano, it's now called Same Sky Health, communications platform for multicultural populations. And then finally, aging in place. We did have a company called Home Thrive, really focused on helping family caregivers support their aging loved ones. So those are uh, six or so categories that, yeah. that um, we do spend a lot of time in. Again, it's not um, fully comprehensive but we tend to be thematic investors. So our process is we actually take a step back. We do market mapping work. We spend a lot of time looking at a specific landscape. 
really where we think that there's an opportunity to place a bet um, and where there's white space. And we either find a company that solves that white space, and if we can't, we'll go out and start a company. So a great example of that process, we invest in a business called Brightline, which many of you may know, they just raised around a financing uh, focus on pediatric behavioral health. We did a ton of work in peds, really had known Naomi forever, uh, made an investment in her business because of where we really saw an opportunity. So you've mentioned some some broader categories for the company. I'm curious if you have uh, personal areas of passion when it comes to investing. I'm sure if folks on this call were to think about pitching you, they'd want to know really, really where is Alyssa's mind uh, this year? Uh, where does she want to invest? Yeah, all of those are areas that that I personally feel passionate about. So so you know we are um, because we're a dedicated fund in in terms of our focus. We tend to think about areas um, collectively that are really interesting that we all um, spend time. Now, obviously there's things as consumers, um, we, we were all the benefit of, I think why everybody's in this room today is because you're a consumer of health and you're incredibly frustrated. I imagine with the process that you experience and you, you were banging your head against the wall and, and needing to fix that. And I'm no exception. I'm expecting with my third child and in a matter of weeks, like I've gone through um, many challenges in my journey in healthcare, like many of you have gone through in your in your healthcare journeys. And so those are things obviously that I feel passionate about. But part of being an investor is also our ability to step outside ourselves. I, I hope to never have some of the challenges or conditions that for the companies that we service because they're incredibly debilitating. But understanding them, having empathy for them, empathy for a severe mental illness and what's required and the cost pressure it puts on the system um, are, are areas that I, I, I care a lot about. But for me, um, I, I have a personal passion towards underrepresented uh, markets, underrepresented founders. Um, it's you know where I, I spend a lot of personal time, where the fund spends a lot of time, just thinking about what we can do to, to continue to, to improve health equity and, and the status quo. Awesome. Uh, before I get into the next question, just a reminder to everybody that we'll be moving into a Q&A at one point. So uh, be thinking about questions you'd like to ask. And at any point, you can drop them uh, in the chat and I'll call on you when the time's right. Alyssa, I want to change direction briefly and talk about how you vet founders, how you think about founders when you're, when you're looking at opportunities. Uh, I, wrote, I read a piece that you wrote in Fortune recently about work-life balance. Now it's, it's a bit of a myth. Uh, you write that, quote, our whole idea of balance is unrealistic. And you go on to say that every day is about making trade-offs and finding comfort in the fact that the decision was made. It's okay to not have all the answers. And I think, you know, you get a lot of nodding heads to that, uh, that sentiment. But I also imagine that when founders pitch to you, um, there's a desire to present like they've got it all figured out. And, I, and I, so I wonder if by, you know, sharing this, this idea about, about balance, if that has shaped the way that you think about founders that you're thinking about investing in and what you're looking for, uh, have those revelations sort of impacted how you assess the folks that you invest in? Yes. I just, I posted the article in the chat. I would love everybody's feedback. I actually wrote it at two in the morning when I couldn't sleep because I'd had a week of panels of people asking, like wanting me to give the like the, the holy grail of what is, you know, perfection in, in this life that we have. And I think you all, I mean, you all feel it such, such high acuity every day, that there's not such thing. Um, and it's okay that it's okay that we can be 
um, out of balance. That actually is being in imbalance. It's, it's just the constant teetering and choices. And my philosophy is just having comfort in those choices. Um, and, and the decisions that we make. So your question, Logan, though, is more about what do I look for and, and how do I think about evaluating CEOs? So first for me, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a really big believer in us as a fund. Um, we care about founder market fit. Why are you and your team the right people to do something and build it? It's incredibly hard to build a company in healthcare. There are much easier ways to make money in this life. And we are mission-driven. We care about what we're doing, but there's a lot of people trying to solve these problems. Like they're not, um, they're not new problems. Most people aren't, you know, I, I usually, when I get a pitch, I don't usually need to spend a ton of time on the problem slide because I get it right. We get it. And, and it's really about why are you all the right people to be doing what you're doing? Why are you? And I, you know, I mentioned a, a company in OCD, Stephen Smith has OCD, right? He has an SMI. It was, horrible in his life and what it did to him and how challenging it was. And he, he swore he would never let anybody experience that again. And Glenn Tolman, when he started Lavongo and his son was diagnosed with diabetes and said, I'm going to fix this. Like I- I'm going to build something that, that solves this problem. And again, we're never perfect, but we really, we care. And I think you all are doing this for, for a material reason. So that, that to me is true North of, of, being the right team and why it is that you're, you're there because it's really hard and building any company is hard. Building a company in healthcare is exponentially hard. Other things I don't actually, you know, Logan, I push back in that we expect you to have all the answers. I don't think that's true. Um, This is, this is not, I'm not a customer. I'm not getting, you know, the pitch of, of, you know, the one time and we're, we're trying to like, show you that we're maybe a little bigger than we are, whatever it is. This is a marriage. I'm on your board for the next five, seven plus years of your life. And um, I'm going to talk to you all the time. And I want you to be able to sell me on a vision, but I want you to be honest. And I want to know there's honesty. And frankly, in venture, we're going to get access to every piece of data you've ever produced, if that's something that we want. And so we'll figure it out eventually. And if we feel like there was a disconnect between what was told and what's real, it can be quite frustrating. If you say you're at a run rate that you're not at, if you say there's a signed contract that there isn't, again, it it doesn't mean that there isn't the power of storytelling, but there has to be a foundation of honesty. And what I, I push for founders is if, you know, the best pitches I think are ones that are great storytellers are great time managers, which we can talk about that piece and are honest. And those three things are, it's a hard balance to do all three of those things at the same time in the 30 minute slot that you're given in an initial pitch. Uh, and I'm happy to share more about some of the tips and tricks and things that I've seen. And I don't know how much you all know about my background. I, I did raise, I started a company, I raised venture financing, but you know, small, I raised a million bucks for that business. So but I have, I have been in your shoes and, and learned a little bit of, of just what I saw. Um, and ultimately wanna... trying to translate that to this side of, of one, just having the empathy for you, you all, you think about your business every second of every day and we don't. And all we have is the benefit of pattern recognition. So the questions that we're going to ask are the new ones that we ask because of all the things that we've seen, but we should be asking it and DC should be asking it in a way that respect and acknowledge how much work and time and effort you've put into the company that you've built. 
That's great. I want to ask you more about that time managers piece because that's really interesting. But I want to pause for a minute and ask and, and let a couple people ask questions because it relates to what you just talked about. So uh, Satya from Adar Health, he has, he has a question um, about how you vet founders. So Satya, go ahead and come off mute and ask it. Hi, Elsa. Great to have you here. Uh, I've seen you in many forums. And I'm excited that you're here talking to Logan. Uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Adar Health. It's a digital medicine company. Like Glenn, who started the company, and like Livango to help his son, uh, we started Adar to help my mom. She also started with diabetes, but um, unfortunately, I took it for granted. And after a couple of years, she developed four other chronic conditions, which uh, was really brutal to be a caregiver. So that's why we built uh, this company and we built a device. It's a single integrated device that measures more than 10 health parameters in just uh, 30 seconds, non-invasively. Uh, and it's an FDA cleared CMARC approved solution. So uh, not to pitch too much about the company, but it essentially kind of integrates into from, for example, Jasper to Transcare into Livango to others. Um, but my main thing is, uh, a lot of people really talk about uh, founding CEOs versus uh, professional CEOs, right? So uh, as a first-time CEO, I was I was able to get the company this far with just $3.5 million raised till date, which is kind of unheard of. Uh, but um, a lot of times investors talk about professional CEOs, right? So what do you, what do you think about it? And, and most of your prof- portfolio has pretty much like founding CEOs, I believe, still now. So how do you view that? And uh, sorry for the long question, but I think uh, I'd love to hear your feedback on that. Well, thank you for for sharing. Thank you for the mission. Uh, I'm sorry that you keep hearing my voice all the time. My mother tells me I have a nasally voice, so (laughs) I appreciate it. And to to answer your question, I, look, there are situations that require different types of leaders. And it's hard to say, uh, my, my original statement about founder market fit still stands, that you have to have passion to do something, particularly at the early stages. I think it's incredibly challenging to build a business and not feel that. Um, at some point, sometimes the businesses outgrow people and that happens and that's okay. Um, and that's often when maybe a more experienced operator will come on board who still cares about the mission, but um, has a bit more alignment around the operational excellence that's needed um, to, to grow. And frankly, most companies, every time they triple, they break. So you think about the, the growth trajectory of scale and how quickly many of these companies scale. Many of my companies started with you know, just where you were raised a small round and now they've raised mega rounds and have hundreds of employees. And a lot of our CEOs have really grown with it. And, and a lot of them have brought in people alongside them to help. And sometimes that's leadership team members that can help scale and they retain the CEO position because they are truly the evangelists of that business. And sometimes they say, you know what, the time is now. It's time for me to actually take us to a step aside. And, um, you know, while I love this business and what I've built, it, it really could use uh, someone who, who has that, that operational experience a, a little bit more deeply. So it's very personal decision. It often comes after a long, long, long dialogue with the board. 
and the team. And it's usually the founder. Like, frankly, we rarely really have contentious um, replacements because it's usually the founder recognizing and maybe somebody surfaces it. Like, do you think that this is right for you? But um, it's really hard to sometimes feel, you know, everyone wants to feel successful. Everybody wants to be utilizing their superpower and what your superpower is in a seed stage business is very different than like a series C business or, you know, a growth stage business or a public company. And Glenn will say all the time, he's run public companies. He's done. He doesn't like doing public companies anymore. So when we were gearing up to take Livongo public, we brought in Dane Burke because Dane had done it and Glenn didn't want to do it anymore. And Glenn was his highest and best use was actually shifting to the exec chair of the board. Awesome. Thank you so thanks, much. Thanks for the question, Satya. Uh, let's go to a question from uh, Brad Helfand. Brad, you can come off mute. Hi, Alyssa. Uh, good to meet you. Uh, my name is Brad Helfand. I'm the CEO of a company called Vu Vitamin, which is a personalized vitamin company based in Highland Park, Illinois, which I think you're probably familiar with. Um, I am, Brad. I grew up in Deerfield. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm aware. Um, hey, my question for you is really, you mentioned that you do a little angel investing on the side. And I'm just curious about uh, approaching people who work in the PE venture world around being potential angel investors. Are there restrictions that you have because of your, your fund restrictions and what you could personally invest in? And uh, do you use a different criteria to screen angel investments than your typical venture screening criteria? And just eager to hear more. Yeah. So um, fund, uh, every fund is different in terms of a lot of funds say like nothing that the fund could do. Some funds say it's case by case. Some funds have, you know, less restriction. It, it really just depends on the fund dynamic and how it's set up. Um, your other two questions. One is, um, can you pitch them? How do you pitch them? And two is, is the screening process different? Um, so um, I think the answer is yes, you can pitch them, but I wouldn't pitch them as leads future leads, like you really, your angels should be treated as the people who can open doors for you, make connections for you, be really, really, really supportive of what you're building um, in not as much as an institutionalized way. And so the way I work as an angel with some companies is, is, is a little bit different, right? Um, a lot of it is personal passion um, some of it is healthcare. Um, a little bit of it isn't. It's supporting people in my life that I know and I care a lot about, and I can just be a sounding board about more general, like you know, pitch practice or for th things that that you know they're they're a bit more um, novices on. I'd say like I wouldn't make it a personalized angel investors are usually people that you know or people that you get connected to again that care a lot about the personal problems. So I wouldn't make a uh, um, targeted outreach list of all the VCs and try and get into the fund investing through, through that channel. It just seems a little bit more muddled. Um, but, but look, in terms of the evaluation, of course it's different. Like I am, and we, we as fund investors, we are, we are swinging for the fences, right? We are trying to do multi-billion dollar exits here. Um, we are, if, if someone came to many of you and I imagine offered to buy your company for 20 million or $50 million, like that's life-changing money. At least for me, <laughs> life-changing money. And I, I imagine for many of you, it's a different, if the, and the, my fund hat is on, I'm, I'm not happy with that outcome. That outcome 
most likely will not happen under unless it unless then that if it does, it's no one celebrating that outcome. Versus, you know, in a bootstrap business or just an angel back business, right? It's very different. So the the type of return that you're thinking about at the different stages is very different. So the evaluation, the criteria is very different. Angel investing is the market, the person or people and the ideas. And the things that I've signed up for, and I'm not a create, you know, I'm, I still have young kids and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm quite selective with, with how I think about it, but ultimately it's about the people that I believe in and, and some I could invest in, in the fund down the road, hopefully some are not a fit at all. And it's just really about being supportive of people and their mission, um, which is a criteria venture, but not the only criteria. Awesome. Thanks I don't know, for the... Logan, if you feel differently, <laughs> I'd love other folks to chime in here. Yeah. Well, Brad, I appreciate the question. Yeah. If anybody else uh, does have thoughts, uh, feel free to drop it into the chat. Um, Alyssa, I wanted to return back to something you said about, you know, vetting founders and, and really understanding the, the strengths of a founding team. You know, should I invest in this team? You talked about honesty and we could have a discussion about kind of how honest, like sort of how vulnerable at what stage. Uh, but you mentioned uh, time managers. You're looking for time managers. And I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, let, let me clarify. That was a comment on um, how to pitch to a VC. Okay. Um, not a, a quality or skill set and um, more generally. So I can't, I, I think there's pros and cons to being a time manager, um, I guess. I don't know if I'd say like that's my top three quality, um, but my my comment was more around, and you'll get in a first pitch. All of you know this: thirty minutes. Um, the first five minutes is spent a combination of everybody trying to figure out the technology that they're zooming into, or teamsing into, or God forbid, using you know WebEx, and uh, and then small talk, what's going on, what people are up to, right? So you really have, you know, 20, 25 minutes and you're expected to tell a really powerful story. And the challenge is you've spent your whole life thinking about this problem most likely, or a lot of your life, you've spent the last X number of months or years every single day thinking about this problem. And now you're expected to distill all of that down into a 20 minute discussion. And it's interesting. Sometimes we joke that we can pitch our companies better than, than they can in the beginning because I don't know as much, right? And you know so much. And it's very hard to take a step back and only give the nuggets of information that are most impactful and leave the rest for later follow-up discussions. And it takes a lot of discipline. And what we typically find is most companies will come and they will pitch for... 23 minutes straight. And it's very hard to have a real engaged dialogue if you, you haven't even gotten to the second half of your pitch deck and we're 20 minutes into the meeting and we have three minutes left. Um, folks who don't actually save time at the end to ask about next steps, to talk about the process, to ask for you know, the financing, to you know, the prep work up front, um, really understanding who you're meeting with, what kind of checks they write, what deals they're in what they like. Um, I'm super active on social channels, particularly um, have recently gotten very active on Twitter. I'm happy I put my, um, I can put my handle in here, but it, what I like, what I care about, what I read, it's very public. So, you know, it's not, it's not, 
very hard to find. Um, and there's very easy ways to make early connections to confirm that this is a mutual fit for, for this type of discussion. And so I, I often, I think I get a lot of head nods when I say this, like, yeah, yeah, no, like I get it. We know we have to pitch and we have this much time, but then you get into it and you're so, I mean, look, I, I understand we, we, this hatch company we just built, I spent a year of my life trying to get this company up. Like it, it so required so much discipline to take a step back and like, how do I tell the story of what we're building in two minutes? You know, I'm meeting out RLPs and I'm trying to tell this, this company that we built. And, and I'm like, what, what's my actual 30 second elevator pitch. And there's not, maybe not as much discipline that comes around. I think there's a lot with the 30 seconds. Um, there's less with like the five to eight minutes. And I think that's kind of what you're, what you're aiming for a little bit is telling your story in a powerful and concise way. So then most of the discussion is led around questions. And like, this is not rocket science. VCs are not rocket scientists either. Like we tend to follow this quite a similar process. And the more questions we ask, the more engaged we are. And we all feel this on Zoom, like especially not being in person, being talked at for 25 minutes, like I'm doing to you all today is hard. And, and this is why, you know, I, I love these questions coming through the chat. I want, I'm, I'm watching it and reading it like, this is your time. And um, I think everybody wants to feel like you're having an engaged conversation and, and you're the owner of that. You're the driver of that. And by the way, when VCs go off the rails, it's your job to bring them back. You know, mm-hmm. same with customers. Like it's, it's a similar type of process in which you're going back to make sure you hit the key points to get into the next step. That's good stuff. That's good practical wisdom there, Alyssa. To that end, let's go to a question in the chat, as you alluded. And Jamie from Startup Health, from our team, uh, go ahead and come off mute. Hey, Alyssa. Thank you so much for being with us today. Um, We're in the business of helping our health transformers really be able to take control of their entrepreneurial journey. And one of the biggest parts of that is obviously fundraising. Um, what advice can you provide for these, you know, health transformers that are on the line today so that they can take control of their fundraising process as opposed to it controlling them? I feel like a lot of times as entrepreneurs, we're takers of terms. We are, you know, we'll go and we'll speak to one of the health transformers like, oh, I had a hundred meetings and I got five, you know, five, you know, term sheets or I got, you know, it's not about the number of meetings or kissing a lot of frogs. It's about kissing the right frogs, right? So, what can you speak to about that preparation and, you know, making sure that the fundraising process isn't a huge distraction from them actually running their business at the same time? Yeah. Um, thank you, Jamie. Thank you for the work that you guys all do. I, I love, I'm such a big startup health fan. Um, I don't know. I'll give you my macro level answer that I don't think anyone's going to like. And then I will give you my tactical answer that hopefully is a little bit more helpful. Um, my macro level answer is, uh, the market dictates your terms better than anything else. Five term sheets will get you a better price than one term sheet. There's no way around that. VCs love FOMO. They always have. They always will. They want to feel like there's a sense of urgency. And the best urgency you can possibly create is real urgency. To hit bar none. And for those who, you know, I, I used, was a healthcare operator for a long time. I worked with guys who worked for a long time and launched new technologies for them. And like, this, you know, this, this is, this is also sales 101, right? I think many of you who, who have come from a commercial background know that. Um, the second piece is it is going to eat up a ton of your time. 
it is going to take you away from the business. And that is one of the most frustrating things that founders have a really hard time with because fundraising is frustrating and it is hard and it is challenging to navigate. And there are ways, there are hacks and there are ways to make it faster. There are ways to make it easier. There are ways to make it more efficient, but you have to expect three to six months. It will take you to raise a series A and if you're CEO of the business, it's probably in the throes of it going to be almost 75% of your time. And like, isn't that nuts? Everyone wants you to build this amazing business. And you're like, I'm trying here, but I'm spending all my time fundraising. So um, he, here's, here's my tactical advice. One, prep work goes a long way. I mentioned this. All of us as VCs, not only just funds, but people. We are all people. We all have interests. We all have backgrounds. We all have stories. We all like most of us are public about most of us. You can read, I read a ton of contributed pieces. You mentioned my fortune one, which was like a little bit more personal in nature, but I do a ton of, of content specific ones. Like it is, it is pretty quick to figure out if there's something that we do or don't do. If you look on our website and you look at our portfolio and there's no company that looks even remotely like you, and you go through the partners and maybe it's a generalist fund and there's one healthcare person and that healthcare person has never done or never spoken about your topic ever. Maybe that's not going to be your highest target, right? Now there's ways to be opportunistic. Typically we're, we're more transparent than that, right? Typically. So look, I'll get pitched like total life science deals, like drug development. And we, we don't do that. And we're clear about that. And we say that on panels and we say that in print and we say that on, on our website, we have nothing that's analogous and yet still get pitched for it, um, which is fine. And that we just quickly say, thanks, but that's not a fit for us, but it's still, you're still spending cycles. And so trying to figure out your narrowed list of cycles is important and relationships are important. You know, meeting people, meeting them outside of a fundraise. I like to say to CEOs, 10 to 20% of your time always should be spent doing this. That when you're in a city, if you're in Chicago and we've had, you think someone is the best fit, like come see us, right? Come meet with us. You're here for customers anyway. Let's get a, grab a coffee. Um, you know, now's not the best time for me because I'm about to give birth in a couple of weeks, but I have a great team here who can, who, who can cover for me. Um, but it's really about, getting to know people and then setting the expectation, Hey, I'm going to do this next year. And, and we remember, right. We save your materials. We take notes, we keep your decks. And, and then you come back to me and say, Hey, I did that. MetaRive is a great example. We invested in Dan's. We actually passed on his seed. We just felt like we, it was too early. We, we don't, we don't really do that. And there's a lot he had to prove. And then he came back and he had doubled the number of enterprise customers. He told us he was going to stop and he, he did it. Right. And that is, I think one, a great and very, very powerful way to prove and many investors often can be multi-stage um, other tactical things that I'm happy to go through. But again, I know you guys have awesome programming, uh, you know, warm introductions are always helpful. I think everybody knows that. Um, we always will take calls from trusted sources. M number one is always to be our CEOs. If my CEO says, talk to somebody, I will, no matter what, because they trust them. Um, LPs is probably number two. Um, so that's a little bit harder for you to know who our LPs are necessarily unless it's published. Um, and then obviously folks in network, um, there are hacks on process 
Um, VCs consume information the exact same way every time. They don't consume it through executive summaries. They consume it through a 10 to 12 page pitch deck. I know you want to write an executive summary because it reads beautifully and looks beautiful, but a pitch deck is just much easier. It's it. You, you want to just create as least amount of friction as possible that someone can, can consume the information the same way they consume all information and that the friction to take a call or to take the next step or to take the meeting is, is very little that you, I get a pitch deck from one of my CEOs asking for an intro. And then you send me an email and say, Alyssa, I saw you wrote this piece. This is why we were late. You know, uh, John Shellhorn at Drago told me to talk to you and here's our deck. Can we, you know, spend some time? Right. Th those are the easiest ways. And I hear you, Jamie, like we don't want to kiss a lot of friends, but we do kiss a lot of friends. I know it's just, it's a little bit of the nature of the game. And a lot of it can be, it's, it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not you, it's me. Like it can be timing. It can be, um, it can be situational. The deals that we're like, we may be already heads down in a deal trying to close another deal. And it's just, we like you, but we sort of committed our time already to something else that we were working on. Um, it could be potentially competitive. Like you don't see this competitive one of our companies, but our other companies not totally feeling great about it. And, you know, we have to sort of lean on what they say. Um, and, and it's per, it can be person specific, especially at generalist funds. Like generalist funds, I think, are probably the ones that have the most, um, you know, getting to the right person, which is, which is important. Is that helpful? Yes, that's good, that's good stuff, Alyssa. You, you know, you've packed so much in there that I think everyone is, is, has a lot to process. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. Um, talk to us a bit about kind of how you view this moment in time in terms of uh, the market as a whole. Jamie mentioned it in, a, in a, another comment here talking about kind of, are we in the early in, innings of digital transformation sort of thinking about the effect of COVID on virtual health? And maybe it'd be helpful to talk about some of those market trends in 2022 through the lens of a couple of your recent investments as, as case studies, kind of um, what you're seeing as opportunities now that might've been different a year or two ago. Got it. So just to play that back to you, Logan, question one is how do I see the market overall? And two is maybe what are trends that, what are things that used to not be true that are true today that allow for companies to create more value? Exactly. Great. Um, piece one, super bullish. Like Livongo Teladoc was the tip of the iceberg. I think that the, we, we work and build companies in a multi-trillion dollar business. There is no reason we cannot have more and more and more of those companies that are exiting for billions of dollars. Transparent should be a $50 billion business, like no, hands down and can be right now. We have a lot of execution and things we have to build, but we feel really bullish about the opportunity and, and where that lies. And I hope many of you do too. Now that doesn't mean all of you are, are, should be building a multi-billion dollar business, right? That's that's another question. But I, I feel I feel quite bullish, and the public markets are are tough right now. The private markets have um, pros and cons to them too. But I'm a believer in in you know I'm a I'm a long run player. Like this is healthcare isn't going away. It's only our population is aging. We have more and more ailments and challenges. The number of chronic conditions we have, the mental health. Um, of our population is rapidly declining, particularly in the middle of a pandemic. And we finally have started to see 
the, the, the light the pandemic has provided, which is kind of weird. It's, it's such a devastating situation to be amidst COVID-19. That said, there's real light about what many of you have seen around some of the relaxants on reimbursement strategies, the regulation, um, how we think about care delivery, and there's a long way to go. It's just, I think we're, we're exponential, not incremental, but sometimes it can feel incremental. And so it does, it does take time. My, my perspective on what, maybe I'll give two examples of companies that have confirmed thinking and changed my thinking as we think about opportunities, if that's helpful, Logan. Uh, one is on confirmed thinking. There's a real notion of ROI in healthcare. Um, I wrote a piece once about how early stage companies can think about ROI for TechCrunch. I'm trying to find it uh, and put it in the chat, but um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of the holy grail, right? When you're pitching, especially to health plans, they want ROI, they want the data, and you're sort of sitting there saying like, wait, but I don't have access to your claims data. So that's that's the real way to think about, you know, closing closing the loop. And we're invested in a business called Zoraiga, which I mentioned for people with chronic skin conditions. And this was very much a, an analog to Levanco. When we saw this business, it was a very different kind of business. We actually pivoted it to focus on um, a platform strategy similar to what we did with Lavongo. It has a connected device for UVB light therapy, and it's really focused on people with chronic skin conditions like eczema, psoriasis, and vitiligo. Um, and for those maybe who have or know loved ones that have chronic skin conditions, um, many people, particularly with psoriasis, will eventually go on biologics. Uh, Humira, Cosentics, biologic spend is outrageous in this country. A biologic will typically cost a health plan about $50,000 a year per person. And things like light therapy and other treatments are much, much lower costs. And, and actually the appropriate clinical protocol to be followed before somebody goes on a biologic. So this company came in and basically very clearly outlined a path to ROI and a path to extreme savings for many of the plans. Uh, and self-insured employers. And so for us, that was quite confirmatory. That it's, it's, it's probably the best example of like hard ROI that, that a lot of my companies don't have that. But it is one when you have, and that's your space. It's so, so, so powerful. Um, particularly when you talk to, you know, they're working with one of the biggest health plans in the country and also one of the biggest PBMs. And they said psoriasis are, is our top three priority right now. Like that one condition because of how much drug spend they have on the biologic side. So think about, do you have an analog there because of how powerful that is and how, frankly, from just a, if you are going to some of the incumbents, that's just such a strong narrative to be telling. On the flip side, um, companies have changed my thinking. So I mentioned NoCD, um, again, severe mental illness platform starting with obsessive compulsive disorder. And typically what VCs, what we do is we look at claim, we say, what's like, what are the big markets, right? We say like, let's pull all the claims data, you know, oncology, MSK, cardiology, whatever. If you pull the claims in and you said, how, how big is your spend in OCD? A plan would be like, none, we have three people. And what in reality was happening is these people were actually landing in the claim as something else, misdiagnosed, undiagnosed, depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, right? They, they weren't actually being treated for what the underlying condition that they had. And so what NoCD did is they started doing direct-to-consumer acquisition. They started, they had created a really interesting SEO, SEM strategy on long tail 
around intrusive thoughts. And I don't know if anybody knows what OCD is, but it's not like don't step on the cracks. It's you have these debilitating intrusive thoughts that are just completely disrupt your life. They're often um, very taboo thoughts and things that you are very uncomfortable sharing with anybody else in your life. There's also a provider shortage, extreme provider shortage in SMI, which many of you may know. And so they started finding these people and these people were so desperate for treatment and they developed, um, you know, they took ERP therapy, exposure response prevention is very effective with OCD. And, um, and they started delivering teletherapy to these people and had unbelievable outcomes and started getting the data. And then they went to the health health plans and they said, Hey, look at what we're doing over here. We're doing a really good job. You guys should pay us now. And so now what they do is they still do DTC acquisition but they actually monetize through the health plans and they get plan reimbursement on either fee for service. So they also have case rate contracts and they have a really, really strong reimbursement plan. So I tell this story of like, if I just, if my strategy as a VC was just like, the problem lies in the claim, right? Claims are lagging indicators, not leading indicators. And so there, I, that would be a business that we wouldn't have invested in, right? And there's a number of other companies where, and people say, well, is this market really big enough? I feel like I go to some women's health all the time. It's like, okay, well, 50% of the population. And just because the claims don't populate it doesn't mean it isn't a problem. And so what kind of creativity can you bring to that process to think about servicing that population and solving a real problem? That's great. That's great. Um, we're getting towards the top of the hour. So I want to let everybody know if you want to squeeze in one last question, now would be the time. Also, we'll give folks a chance to drop into the chat. Um, just a something they're taking away from this, uh, an insight that they've heard as a way to sort of reflect back to Alyssa and the group, uh, a lesson learned. So something that I'm thinking about is here we have this panel, this, this audience of founders uh, really looking at health from a lot of unique a lot of unique angles a lot of very creative founders and uh, and you have this um, important vantage point looking at health uh, from seven wires side and i wonder if and this could be a difficult question for you to answer if you could wave a magic wand is there a challenge in health could be a point solution could be something really big that you wish someone would solve that that frustrates you right now um Great question. I actually, I just did this exercise with the company that we hatched. So it's, um, we're going to, uh, it's, it's in women's health, but a bit more earlier in the, the journey. My, my other problem that I've been, that I want somebody to solve and solve really well that I don't feel like I've seen quite yet is, um, um, manage Medicaid business in maternal health. Um, I just don't think, I think most maternal health focuses on commercial. Um, it's purpose built for women like me who, um, you know, of course have our own challenges, but not nearly the same. Um, if you think about being on a Medicaid plan and, um, the most of the companies I've seen either do like a provider acquisition strategy, which I don't love, um, do more of a one piece of it. Um, like just the doula component of it. Yeah. And don't really think of, and it's hard. And then for a number of reasons, I, you know, I, I understand why building a more comprehensive platform here is really challenging, but I want to see someone raise like a boatload of money and solve that problem. I love it. Uh, let's go to a quick question from Jeffrey Gluck in the uh, chat. So Jeffrey, go ahead and come off mute. Uh, sure. Uh, 
Thanks. Uh, I noted that uh, Seven Wire recently invested in a company in GI space called Vivante. Um, and I wonder, and given what you were talking about in terms of the payer presentation and what you called, I think, uh, B2B to C, no, it was like D to C to B, you said. Um, how, how do you think about the GI space in the same way that you discussed psoriasis and some of these others in terms of whether payers recognize it and, and see it as, uh, or see it properly in the claims data? And when could you define that, uh, uh, you know, D to C to B comment that you made early on? Sure, sure. So um, I'll start with the latter and I'll end with the former. Um, and the, the comment made. So, so I'd say it probably falls in the middle of a no CD and a zirigo, zirigo, right? Like zirigo is like the most clear cut ROI, no CD had no like claims data whatsoever. GI is probably in the middle, mostly because the employers actually start to care a lot about it. The employers are hearing a lot about it from their employees. And so while the plans are seeing some of like the higher acuity cases and the cost, um, the employers are the ones really pushing for solutions. And so we've actually, Vivante's done a really nice job of getting a number of employer contracts. And now that's actually leading them to get introduced to health plans. So, so probably if that helps answer the question about that specific condition somewhere in the middle. Um, my comment, and so uh, they're a bit more B2B to C. So Vivante will sell to an employer and then, you know, do the second sell to the consumer. My uh, D to C to B common is an OCD, right? We're going to do direct to consumer acquisition and then we're going to monetize through the health plan. And so we have a couple of companies on that D to C to B route. We have a number of companies on B to B to C. Um, we do nothing B straight B to B. Again, our thesis is around consumer directed healthcare and empowering consumers to be better stewards of their health. And so it, it's, it's been interesting to watch some of the creativity. We've probably pivoted four or five businesses at this point from straight direct to consumer into B2B2C. Um, there's challenges associated with that. We have a certain philosophy around doing that, but ultimately think that it can be successful, but that the, the, the bulk of the dollars, particularly with a lot of these conditions that are high cost conditions, like a psoriasis, you know, a severe mental illness, et cetera, it's, it's really, really hard to build a full cash pay business off of that. Appreciate the question, Jeffrey. Um, Alyssa, when you are in the position of advising uh, an early stage company, is, is there a piece of advice that you find yourself giving the most often that makes you think, oh, I might be becoming a broken record here, that you just always come back to a central um, theme when you're advising? I love that question. Um, so, so I'm really big on storytelling. Um, the power of storytelling is so influential in everything that you do as a founder. It's how you raise capital. It's how you acquire talent. It's how you get customers. And I don't think enough reps are, are placed around how to crisply tell the best story. And often I like to play back a story to somebody and ref help refine that story so it can be the most impactful story possible. So I, I wouldn't say that's... When you say, when you say you play it back to somebody, kind of walk me through some of the mechanics of that process. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, this is like what I love. So you, you pitch to me and I'm going to pitch right back to you and I'm going to tell your story right back to you of how I heard your story, right? And we're gonna do it together and think about the language and the messaging that's gonna be the most powerful. 
um, to really hone in on exactly where the proof points are, but where the vision is too. And it's just, it's so influential in everything that a founder does and everything a company does that and it's, it's very hard to put discipline around it um, mm. because often we're, we're burning, you know, we're putting out a thousand fires, playing a whack-a-mole game every single day. It, it sometimes falls by the wayside when in fact it becomes one of the most important things that, that somebody could do. Other common uh, red flags in terms of someone's narrative that you've identified pattern recognition? <sighs> Time management. <laughs> um, Go, going too long. Yeah, being crisp and concise. Um, yeah. Then there's probably the, the ends of the spectrum. You're either too detailed or you're too vague. Like if you just say buzzwords, nobody knows what you do. If you're so, so, so detailed and so on the weeds, like nobody sees the vision. And so probably you're know, making, creating a balance of where you're telling the story, you're telling the problem, you're telling why there's a solution to it where the business is today and where the business is going. Um, it's how, how essential is the naturalness, the genuineness of the presentation? Uh, so those are two different things. Sometimes someone has the, has the, the right narrative, but it's, it's not particularly natural coming out of their mouths. Uh, and is that teachable? So what we used to do um, when I ran commercial teams is the philosophy is we all, we have a structure for the story that we're telling, right? Especially like at some point you have to translate that story from founder to a salesperson. And that's a really, really hard transition. It's very easy. Like I mentioned Stephen Smith. Stephen Smith can tell his story about having OCD, but someone who doesn't have OCD has to have that same power impact, but, but doesn't have it, right? So they have to tell it in a different way. And so it's, that transition becomes quite mechanical if you, if you can do it correctly. And what we like to say and what we used to do when I ran Curtis teams was, um, was to actually create the framework and the story and you memorize it and then you forget it, right? And what does that mean? You know all the pieces of how that narrative flows, but then you put it into your own words and your own ability to tell that story. I'm a huge fan of authenticity. It's incre incredibly difficult to try and be somebody else. I work with some amazing, amazing people. Glenn Tolman doesn't sleep. I sleep. I cannot emulate that behavior. I will never be successful emulating that behavior. I will be a tortured soul for the rest of my life. And so we have to recognize our own boundaries, our own strengths and our own superpowers and lead with that. Um, because the more you can take that same message and translate it into the words that are powerful for you, you have to believe that message, you know, and your team has to believe that message and your team's going to believe it in a, maybe a slightly different way than you believe it. Beautiful. Alyssa, that takes us to the top of the hour. I, I think I speak for everybody when a, I, I say we could probably talk a lot longer. Um, you're full of wisdom and, uh, and, and B, we really appreciate you taking the time and, and sharing your wisdom with us today. Always so fun. Like this is my, the most fun part of my day. So um, always happy to have a dialogue and be helpful how I can. You all are doing the real hard work. And look, we, these we always have opinions. So 
when asked, we shall deliver, but take what you like, leave what you don't, um, do this a lot, talk to a lot of different people and formulate your own thoughts on, you know, what, what it means to be a founder and a builder for you. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. Startup Health invests in health transformers from around the world who are committed to achieving audacious health moonshots. If you want to learn how you can join this community of entrepreneurs, or if you want to connect with one of our 380 companies, go to startuphealth.com. If you'd like to learn how you can invest in our Health Moonshot Impact Fund in collaboration with AngelList, go to healthmoonshots.com. Thanks for listening to Startup Health Now. We'll be back next week.